going to start a new series um, this morning called, What Has God Actually Promised? What has God actually promised? Now, here's what you and I know is true, that the, God, the Bible is full of the promises of God. Amen? It's full of them. And as believers in Jesus Christ, all of these promises are for you and me. But the challenge is, as we read all this information, how do we decipher it? How do we discover what's true and what's not and what we should believe and what's not for us and what's for us? What did God actually promise? Like, did he promise great wealth for all his followers? Some people say that. I haven't experienced it yet. But. Did he promise a life without suffering? Perfect marriages. Temptation and sin completely removed from your life. Obedient children. <laughs> World peace. And we talk about these things and we act like they're the promises of God, but I've, lived in, I've been living for Jesus for 40 years now. Can you believe that? As young as I look that I've been serving Jesus for 40 years. It is a joke, that's for sure. I haven't experienced these things, have you? So if we haven't experienced these things, then something's amiss. Does it mean that God is unfaithful? And that he's not doing what he's supposed to do? Or does it mean that I have unrealistic expectations or understandings about God's promises? I think it's the latter because we know God is good, amen? We know God is good. And that all the time he is unconditionally loving. And that even in his times of discipline, God is loving and good. So since that is true, what must also be true is that I often, in my own frailty, and in my own selfishness, want something to be true, and I'll even call it a promise of God, because I so want it to be true, and it doesn't happen, and when it doesn't happen, what do we do? We blame God. We blame God. We say, God, that was your fault. Instead of actually reading his word and finding out, what has God actually promised? We're going to discover some of those things over the next several weeks. And here's why. It is extremely important for you and I to understand God's promises. Because that's what we stand on. It's what we live our life on. It's what we base our life on. And so it's so important for you and I to, to be able to have a verse in God's word and it be our promise from God and be able to live our life on that promise. But I have to know, I have to know that what I am believing is true to all of God's word. That I'm not pulling a verse out of context, or that I'm not just wanting, I'm reading into it instead of getting something out of it, and that I'm trying to get something for my own benefit. It's very important for us to have the promises of God firm in our heart, in our mind, in our actions, because we need God's promises in the world that you and I live in today, which is many times and in many ways falling apart, and we need the foundation of God's word to live on, to stand on. Now, as we begin this series, 
I would like to set the stage for the series. I'd like to start an initial discussion about the challenges with God's promises. Because while there are tons of things that are true in God's word, they also become a challenge for us many times. So I want to just look at some of the challenges that I've had with God's promises and probably you've had and other people have had as well. Here's the first challenge I think we have with God's promises. We can often put more hope in the fulfillment of the promise than in God himself. We often want him to do something so badly that the only way we're connected to God is that he, he must do something for us instead of just being in relationship with him. And let him do and not do whatever he wants because he's a person. See, we want results from God, don't we? That's part of being American. Part of being an American, our culture is what? We want results. That's why I'm mad at the 49ers right now. No results. I want results. I want wins and let's go, right? That's how we all are. We want results from God instead of the presence of God. And what God wants is for us to just live in his presence and be in relationship with him and leave the results to him. But we often put more hope in the promise than in God himself. And what I've discovered is when I want results instead of relationship, God waits to give me the promise. He waits. He waits because I'm just rubbing a God lamp, hoping that he'll pop out and he'll give me three wishes. And that's not relationship. That's a genie in a bottle. And that's not who God is. You can't put him in a bottle. You can't put him in a box. You can't put him in a lamp. You can't put him in this universe. Yet we try. And so God will often not even deal with our promises because he wants real relationship. See, a relationship with God is not based on what God does or doesn't do. It's just based on him. It's based on relationship. It's based on who God is. It's based on the truth that God is God and we are not. See, if our relationship with God is based on him doing what we want him to do and fulfilling promises in our time frame and in our requirements, then who's in control? We are. Now we're saying we're in control of God. And that's not reality. That's not how this relationship works. We serve him, not the other way around. Let me give you an example of this. The people of God, the Jewish culture, Judaism in its originality, and the Pharisees that we see throughout the New Testament, they loved the promises of God. And one of the strongest promises they loved to stand on was, we are the children of Abraham. And so we are living in the promise and we are the chosen people of God, and therefore I can do whatever I want because I'm a child of God, and it really doesn't matter. John the Baptist comes along before Jesus and starts to prepare the way for Jesus, and this is one of the things that John the Baptist said to the Pharisees. In Luke chapter 3, verse 8, he said, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, 
We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. See, the Pharisees were clinging to the promise instead of to the relationship. They wanted God to do stuff for them instead of just be in his presence. And as a result, John says, you have a false view of God. You have a false view of how the promises of God work in your life. You are special because you are a child of Abraham, but you have to still live for God in a correct way and in a correct manner and not assume you can live however you want simply because you are a part of the promise. So sometimes, sometimes we put more hope in the promise than in God himself, and in that case, we wonder why the promise is never fulfilled. Here's another challenge. Sometimes we never get to see the promise of God. That one's interesting because we pray for the promise. We try to live in the promise today. Sometimes you never get to see the actual complete fulfillment of the promise of God. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 11, there's this long list of all of the heroes of our faith in the Old Testament. All these men and women that did awesome things for God, but you get to the end of the chapter, and Hebrews 11.39 says this, These were all commended, these being the long list of Old Testament heroes of the faith. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Interesting. They're living in the promise. They know the promise is a part of their life because God has promised it, but the promise never reaches its fulfillment in their lifetime. For instance, Abraham, the father of our faith, did he get to see his family as big as the sand on the seashore? No. He only got to see one son. So he didn't get to see the promise completely fulfilled. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. David didn't get to build the temple. Daniel is still waiting for his prophetic promises to be fulfilled. See, it's possible that the promise of God that we hold on to may not be fulfilled in our lifetime. For instance, the next really big, awesome, great promise of God is the second coming of Christ. Are we going to see that promise fulfilled? I don't know. I hope so. I want to fly. I just think that sounds cool. Right? I hope that that promise gets fulfilled in my lifetime. But what if it doesn't? Am I going to be disappointed? No. And how should I live? Well, the Bible tells me I should live as if Jesus is coming back today. Therefore, I should live in the promise today, even though it may not be fulfilled today. That's a challenge of living in the promises of God, that it may not be fulfilled today or even in my lifetime, but I still live in the promise. Here's another challenge. We can actually nullify God's promises based on our choices with an asterisk. I put an asterisk at the end. I'll get to that in a minute. But we can actually nullify the promises of God based on our choices. Now follow me. This is like the Old Testament in a nutshell, isn't it? God gives them great promises, and they say, nah, I don't like those promises. 
I think I'll live however I want. I think I'll do whatever I want. I think I'll serve the false gods of the nations around me. And God says what? Okay, then you don't get the promises. And how many times did they do that? Well, luckily, they only did that once. No. They did it over and over and over and over again. That's Judges, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, and all the way to Malachi. That's, that's all they do. All the time, that's their entire history. Having the promise of God, ignoring the promise of God, God nullifying the promise, and them stuck in their problem and in a season of challenge and God rescuing them and them living in the promise again. That is, this is them, right? Up and down, up and down, up and down. Does anybody else live like that? Don't be a liar. <laughs> right? Because we do the same thing, don't we? We do the same thing today. We choose to live in our sin instead of in the power of the Holy Spirit, and then, and then the promises of God aren't a part of our life, and then we blame God. While we ignore him and live our own way and do our own thing and live our own selfish life without God, and then when he doesn't answer his promise that we read in his God word, we get mad at him and we say, it's all your fault. Is it God's fault? No. We nullified it. Because lots of the promises of God are a result. They're conditional. They're conditional upon the fact that you and I choose to be in relationship with God. Because this is a relationship that we have with God. And so you and I are living in a relationship and honoring God with our life, proving our love for him by obedience to his word and to the Holy Spirit. And when we live this way, the promises of God can easily and freely flow into our life. When we live the opposite way, it doesn't happen. Now here's the asterisk. Sometimes, because God is good all the time, he just is nice anyway. Sometimes, just because he's God and he loves to do things for mankind, and we are his creation, created in the image of God, sometimes, in spite of our choices, in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our selfishness, he will do something crazy, like die on a cross. He'll do something radical and bless your life. And you go, I don't deserve that. And you're right, you don't, but he loves you anyway. That's the asterisk. Sometimes he'll just do something awesome and bless you because he just can and he will and he wants to pull you out of where you're at. See, sometimes he will pour out his grace in spite of our choices to live outside of his plan for our life. Now, here's the challenge. You can't live in the asterisks. You can't live there. You can't continue to assume God will rescue me. God will fulfill his promises. God will take care of me and live your own life and live with some hidden sin in your life or, or live a lifestyle outside of his word. You can't live in that asterisk. You know why? Because God's not dumb. He's not dumb. And he doesn't like being taken advantage of. And he knows when we're just using him for our own gain. And when that happens, like it happened in the Old Testament with the Israelites over and over again, eventually he will give us long periods of grace. But eventually God will say, okay, 
It's time for Jeremiah 29, 11. Say, what? That's a great verse, Pastor Mark, which leads me to my last point. Sometimes one of the challenges with God's promises is we can take God's promises out of context. Sometimes we take God's promises out of context. Follow me. We find a verse in the Bible that seems to be communicating what we are looking for, but we don't look at the context of the verse. We haven't looked at what's going on in the story, what's going on in the verses around it. We didn't look at the other verses in Scripture and find out whether or not that verse substantiates what we see all throughout Scripture all the time. Did we study the verse hard enough to determine its true meaning? Did we look at the context of the verse to make sure the promise is not saying something else based on the context? Did we educate ourselves on the history and culture of the verse that it's referring to in order to find out the true meaning? of the verse? Did we understand the circumstances surrounding why the promise of God was given, and if that promise would apply to our life today? Hence, Jeremiah 29 11. Let me give you an example. How many of you love Jeremiah 29 11? I do. It's a great verse. We all slap it up. Listen to this verse. It is so good. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That is an awesome verse. Now, is that verse congruent with the rest of Scripture? Yes. Is it true that God always gives us hope in every season of our life? Yes. Is it true that God's plans and purposes prevail above our own. Yes, those are definitely biblical principles, so we can kind of hold on to this verse. And I say kind of because I want you to look at the context. And I want you to look and see if you would say, I would like the context of this verse to be applied to my life today. Because I want hope, and I want to know God's hope, and I want to know his plans for the future. And so I want this verse to be applied to my life. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So let's start right there. The context is that you are now a slave of the nation of Babylon. Your home has been destroyed. Your family has been ripped apart. Most of your family is probably dead now by the sword. And you have been drugged into exile by God, not Nebuchadnezzar. We'll get to that in a second. Because God is trying to teach you a lesson that you have not learned henceforth. Good context. You want that in your life? <laughs> Here's what God says, verse 5. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. I like that part because what God is saying is have grandkids. 
Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now look at the context. This context, I'm going to make it simple. This context is an adult spanking by God. That's the context. Do you want to put yourself in that context? Do you want an adult spanking by God? Yes. Some? No. Some yes, because you understand the grace of it and the challenge of it. Some no. But look at what God said. God said, I'm taking you into exile because for a couple hundred years now, you have not listened to me. You've lived in sin. You've lived however you wanted to. I've sent you prophet after prophet after prophet to declare my truth to you. You've ignored them. You've killed some of them. And so now I'm taking you into exile. And other prophets are saying, oh, don't worry. We'll just be here for a year or two. Here's what I'm here to tell you. Nope. You're going to be here for a long time. So settle down and strap up. Because you're going to be here for 70 years. Why 70 years? Because you're going to need 70 years. You're going to need a couple generations to figure out that I am God and you are not. And so that you will seek me with all of your heart. It's going to take a while. So find a house. Start having babies. And figure out how to love me again. That's the context of this verse. Now, what does God want them to know in their deepest, darkest, most difficult season of their life? I have a hope for you. I have a plan for you. Now, that's what you and I can discover from this verse. The context is this. In yours and my deepest, darkest seasons of life, there's still hope from God. God still has a plan. But when you and I say, I want to put myself in the context of this promise, be careful, amen? Be careful the context that you might put yourself in to learn that lesson. Now, I would say you can learn a lesson from suffering as well, but my point is be careful when you say, I want the promise of hope to be in my life in the context like Jeremiah 29, 11, or you say something like, I want the promise of patience in my life because when you pray for patience, what you're really asking for is your life to fall apart so that God can teach you how to be patient. What you're praying for is the most annoying coworker to stand next to you for 40 hours a week. That's what you're praying for. 
Now, do we know that God wants us to have hope? Absolutely. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you say, Pastor Mark, I want hope, then I'm going to encourage you, put a new verse on your wall. Make it Romans 15, 13. Because you may not like the context of Jeremiah 29, 11. Does God have good plans for my life? Absolutely, from the beginning to the end of God's word, it's all God's good plans for your life. But does God want me to be disobedient to him and end up in a very difficult season of life to learn a lesson? No, that's not his best. If we end up there because of our own choices and decisions, would there still be hope in that difficult season because that's who God is? Yes. Yes, there would. But before we go off kind of half-cocked on a promise of God, first discover what God promised and what we are holding on to. Is it something I want or something God actually promised? Now, I'd like to take the last few minutes and look at the first promise that um, I want to talk about over the next several weeks. It's also the most important promise of God, the promise of salvation eternal life. From the beginning of the Bible to the very end, the promise of our salvation and eternal life is weaved through all of the pages, all of the stories, all of the examples, the salvation and promise of God. Now, the promise of salvation is interesting because the promise of the salvation of Jesus that is in our life as a result of Jesus Christ holds one of the biggest challenges for the church of Jesus Christ. Because not only is this the greatest promise for the church of Jesus Christ, it's also, unfortunately, become our greatest difference. We have multiple denominations based on this important promise, one believing one thing, one believing another. Theologians have been talking about this promise and how it gets apportioned to our life for 2,000 years. And so the good news is we have about five more minutes and we're going to figure it all out right now. No, we're not going to answer all the questions. But what I would like to do is this. Salvation and our eternal life is like a big pie. It's really yummy and good. I just want to look at one slice for a minute. Here's the slice of the pie that I want to look at. It's this challenge that the church has had theologically for years, and that is that when you and I admit or confess our belief in Jesus Christ and that we are sinners and that we want to serve Jesus Christ, that in that moment, you and I are saved. The second dichotomy to that is that you and I have to do something with our salvation. We're required to live out our salvation. They sound like different things, but they're not. See, there are those that say you must believe in Jesus, and when you believe in Jesus, you are saved in that immediate moment. And are they correct? Yes, they are correct. And there are others that say, but you have to continue to live for Jesus every single day. Are they correct? Yes, 
But for some reason throughout history, we have said we can't put these two together. Or can we? Let's see if we can. Let me take you down the Romans road just for a minute. In Romans, there's several verses that we've just kind of coined as the Romans road that give us a foundation of what salvation looks like. Let me just show them to you quickly. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is that true? We're all sinners. We all mess up. We all make mistakes and fall short of the glory of God. That's true. So all of us are on this level playing field. That's why we are not to judge one another. Amen? Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, we're all sinners and we all deserve death. Uh-oh, but good thing there's a comma there, not a period. Amen? Because the rest of the verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, Lord. And then we get to Romans 10, 9 and 10, this great verse about what it means to be saved. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. These are biblical truths. And over and over and over again, we have verses like this that declare that we are saved when we believe in Jesus, when we believe in his death and his resurrection, we will be saved. The next set of verses tell us that our lives and our actions also need to show that we are saved. So Philippians 2 verse 12 at the end says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. You're in a relationship. Does anybody have to work on their relationship? <laughs> right. You're working out a relationship with God. And guess what? There might be some fear and trembling in it because you're talking about God. But just work it out. He loves you. You love him. Work it out. James chapter 2. By the way, James chapter 2 is pretty volatile. The people that believe the stuff above wanted to rip James out of their Bible simply because of this verse where he said, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has, has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm or well fed, or what we say today, I'll pray for you but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now here's what James says. Of course we can put the two together. You have faith and action. Put them together, and you have a Christian. If you take faith by itself and say, I am a Christian, but I don't do anything for Jesus. I don't serve him. I don't love him, I don't give to him, and I don't, I don't obey him. Am I a Christian? James is saying, how could you possibly say that? You have to have action that says, I'm, I'm serving Jesus, I'm living for Jesus, my life 
is portraying that. And that's what James says. When I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and I start living like it, I put the two together and I am a Christian. It's like this. When you go and buy a brand new car, they give you the keys to that car and you drive it off the lot. But you haven't put a dent in it yet. <laughs> you haven't spilled Starbucks coffee on a seat yet. You haven't been stuck in traffic yet. You haven't done anything. You just bought the car. When we profess our faith in Jesus Christ, salvation started that moment. But, but do you know everything about following Jesus at that point? No, you don't know. You got to work it out. See, salvation is not only something we receive, it's something we do. These two truths about salvation are extremely important. And let me use an illustration to help us with this because we're almost done. Our salvation is like a train on a track. And every train has two tracks unless it's a monorail. It's not a train, it's a monorail. But a train has two tracks, right? Two rails that the train is going down. And salvation is like that train. Now what happens to the train if I take away my actions that honor Christ? I take away that rail, what happens? Train crashes. So, okay, well, I'm going to put that rail back. I'm going to take away the rail that, uh, that we have to work for our salvation now. That's what we have to do. We have to work for our salvation. And, and it's not something that happens when you confess your faith. That's not true either. So you take that rail away. What happens? The train crashes. The train runs on two rails. You must have both rails all the time. This salvation train that you and I are, are on must require a point in our life where we confessed our salvation in Jesus Christ, believed in him, and started living for him, and continued to live in him till we died or he came back. That's how the salvation train stays on the track. That is the actual promise of God. Do not separate the two. The church has been doing that for 2,000 years, and now we're not in unity like we should be. Marry the two, like James says in chapter 2, and become a full-fledged follower of Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me this morning? I'd like to close with one more verse. It's a verse that I think is a good verse for us to think about throughout the rest of this series. It's a verse from... Psalm 119, that is a section of God's Word that is completely about God's Word. From the first chapter, or from the first verse to the last verse, this is the longest chapter in the Bible, but it's also all about the Bible. And in verse 140, the author says, Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. My heart is that that servant would be you. That you would know the promises of God. You would know what they actually are and you would live in them. And not only would you live in them, you would love them. And you would put aside the things of this world and choose to live in the promises of God all the days.
Thanks for coming to church today. Always remember, Jesus loves you very much. So do Kate and I. Have a great week.